Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 25 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, our topic of focus is the excellent and fascinating topic of posture and alignment. Posture and alignment. And those are two like really synonymous words. They kind of can mean uh, mean the same thing. But we tend to find that in general, when people hear the word posture, maybe they tend to think more of just like one's daily static posture, like standing or sitting their posture just all throughout the day. And when it comes to the term alignment, that's a little more in our experience, a little more kind of like yoga movement uh, focused or centered. I at least just find that in the yoga world, there's there's a lot of talk about um, your alignment in your yoga poses, but uh, but ultimately kind of like it's just two words. I feel like they're kind of interchangeable. And when it comes to posture and alignment, I know that Travis and I, we tend to get a lot of questions about these topics. Uh, and, and also we notice in, in society, there are a lot of beliefs and a lot of talk around posture and alignment. So like, what's good posture? What's bad posture? What's the connection between posture, posture and like health or posture and pain, things like that. Uh, and in the yoga world, uh, using a little more of that term alignment, I guess, in a yoga movement practice, there, there's a lot of talk around like um, correct alignment in a yoga pose and incorrect alignment. And just, you know, whether your posture or your, I just used that other word, whether your alignment in a yoga practice may affect potential pain that you may experience or um, you know, things like that. So because we get a lot of questions about these topics, Travis and I had been planning for a while to do an episode that was just focused on this as a pulled out topic. And today, in order to do that uh, very well, we decided to invite on a very special guest to help us talk about this today. And for some of our audience members, we know that um, he will, he'll be very familiar to you. You'll definitely know of him, but for others... He may be a new voice that we're super excited to introduce you to, but our guest today is Todd Hargrove, and he, <laughs> thanks for saying hi, he is someone who, uh, Travis and I, we've really admired his work and uh, his content for years now, for years. I personally have learned so much from uh, what Todd has shared. I find, I mean, Travis and I both find that he's really an amazing educator, like really skilled at breaking down complex topics and communicating about them in, in simple, digestible terms. So we really admire him for that. And uh, just to give you a background of who Todd is and kind of what he's about, he's a Feldenkrais practitioner. He's a rolfer which that's like a, that also called structural integration, a type of uh, manual therapy or body work. He's an author. He's a research reviewer for Physio Network. He's a former attorney. 
He's written a blog at bettermovement.org since 2008. And that blog focuses on applying a modern understanding of pain science and neuroscience to movement-based therapies. And last but not least, Todd is the author of two excellent books, A Guide to Better Movement and Playing with Movement. So with all of that said, we are super excited and thankful to have you here to talk with us and to share with our audience. Welcome, Todd. Thanks for having me. Wow, good intro. <laughs> we get everything? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was well summarized. Oh, Very thanks. Cool. So my, my personal claim to fame is that I've met Todd on mm -hmm. two occasions right. uh, and been Twice? very fortunate I it was to do so. Once. No, there, it was, it uh, there was a repeat performance. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Yeah, you, you guys have hung out before, my understanding. It's true. In Seattle. I got to yeah. see Travis do a flag. <gasps> oh, yes. You did a, a human flag, like that sideways. Yeah, oh yeah outside the coffee shop. It was, I try to do a flag in every state or every new state that I go to. So <laughs> that, that might have been my only flag in the state of Washington. Uh, I'd have to check my records. I didn't make you do a flag the second time we met. I remember that. I don't think so. <laughs> well, I could still do it ne next time. And we're we're working on yours, right? My, mine? <laughs> yeah, I can do a, a vertical flag. Hey. <laughs> that's in yoga. That's like Urdhva Hastasana, like standing oh, okay. with your there arms you up. I like that. <laughs> that's funny. So let's go ahead and roll into our our first question for you, Todd. And I'm curious, you've written a lot on your blog over the years about this, but just to give the audience uh, uh, your perspective, like how do you define posture? Of course, Jenny mentioned it, and especially the, the way that she looks at it from a yoga context, but what does that word mean in your work? Yeah, it's, that's a good uh, question. I guess uh, I would think of posture as being the uh, alignment of your body when you're kind of not doing very much or you're not really moving around that much. Um, I mean, we're always moving. I mean, even, even as I'm sitting here in this particular posture, I've, there's always a little bit of movement going on, but it's not that much. I mean, I'm kind of, I might be moving my head. I might be moving my hands around. But I think a posture is like your alignment when you're not really moving around that much or have that much to do. And so you could have a sitting posture or a standing posture, you know, kind of an athletic ready posture. Um, sleeping yeah. posture, maybe? Is that like a word? That, a sleeping yeah, posture? Yeah, sleeping posture for sure. I think it just describes how you are when you're not doing that much. And I guess there's not that many positions, resting positions for there to be. There's sitting, standing, you know, probably a lot of different sitting postures, but yeah, so it breaks, you know, there's probably like six or seven common postures that we're using all the time. So then how, what would you use a different word for position when you're talking about movement? Mm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, let's say if I'm in the middle of a golf swing, there's a certain position that I'd want to hit, but I'm moving through it very quickly. So I wouldn't call that a posture. I'd call the uh, the ready position for golf, a, a, that's your posture when you're getting started. But as soon as you get moving, you're moving through positions and you have a certain alignment in those positions, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call those positions posture if you're moving through them really quickly. Yeah. I, when I think about strength training, which is my lens, usually it, I'm thinking about, like we would say, it's your form or your technique. And then like Jenny said, in yoga, they often refer to it as the alignment. And I, maybe because 
yoga is more like a lot of static postures and then transitions between them. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why they're focusing on the, I don't know. I don't know why there's another word for it <laughs> when, when they're so synonymous. Yeah. I mean, I guess a static, static position is a posture. Yeah. I think it's the lack of movement, which, which would cause us to call something a posture. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. And it seems like there, I mean, I guess there are ide- there are ideas around um, posture or how we arrange ourselves in movements and in transitions, like with strength training and form or yoga alignment. But I find that there's a lot of talk just around our static day-to-day posture and like, you know, how important that is and that there are these ideas around good or optimal posture and bad posture. Um, what, what would you say, Todd, is like, like society's idea of what constitutes good posture versus bad posture and kind of your definition of what posture is. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say society. I mean, there's definitely something about our body language, which is, it's always a social thing. I mean, the way that you're posturing yourself, the way that you're moving is sending social cues and there's social norms mm-hmm. about the way you're supposed to move and the, the way, and cause you're always sending signals to people about whether you're submissive or whether you're dominant or whether you're conforming or whether you're, you're being sexual or, or, or whatever you're doing, the way you move and the way your posture is sending social signals and society wants to tell you to, to send signals in a certain way. So there, there's always kind of a social element to it. Um, mm-hmm. But like in, in our culture, for a while now, you know, upright posture is associated with a little bit with being an upright citizen and, you know, the sit up straight idea and the be symmetrical idea and to maybe sit still. There's kind of like social messaging and social values mm-hmm. coming into this idea of what's the right posture and what's the wrong posture. So that kind of influences the whole thing. And then you've got these that kind of influences ideas about what's bio. You can kind of kind of confuse the right social posture with the right biomechanical right. posture, and kind of maybe, maybe those are, those are two different ways to think about posture. But you could get those confused, and you know, different cultures, different types of movements are okay. Like in South America, moving your hips is more okay than moving mm-hmm. in the United States, which that kind of sends like a sexual signal. In the United States, some cultures don't want those signals to be sent. And so, you know, all that stuff can kind of get wrapped up. That is such a great point. There are so many like cultural associations around different postures and what they mean and what we communicate through how we move and position our body. And I really like how you delineated between kind of social ideas around posture versus uh, what people think biomechanically about posture. And so I guess, I mean, it's all, it's, I love all of it as yoga meets movement science, since that's our, that's our podcast topic, I guess more of the biomechanical side is a little bit more like what we'd want to kind of dive in and what we talk about today. And I, they're, they're so intertwined though too, right? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But just yeah. as far as the biomechanics go and these ideas around, you know, certain postures preventing pain, certain postures creating pain or um, injury, things like kind of in that in that realm. Yeah. So the so the biomechanics, um, you know, I, the, the concern with um, having a biomechanically correct posture, mm-hmm. I'd say it's overrated is the right word that I like to use. It's not that it's not that. Uh, you know, posture doesn't matter for pain and it doesn't matter for stress. But I would say that it's it's overrated when, uh, when you look at the research and our ideas about, you know, what are what is the best biomechanical alignment? It really tends towards uh, it tends to overrate symmetry. It tends to overrate mm-hmm. verticality and length. I think that those things are associated with good with good posture and health. So if you know, if you see someone that's you know, kind of like this is their posture. It's really twisted. You're showing like hunched over and rounded. Yeah, like at the extremes, someone who's really hunched over uh, and really twisted, you know, that person, I I do believe there is a a more likelihood that they're injured, that they're in bad health. And when you see someone with just like really upright, symmetrical posture, you know, there's probably a little bit better chance that they're a healthy, functional person. But for like 80% of the population, I don't think you're going to be able to judge their health, their freedom from pain, their function that well by looking at their posture. And I think the research kind of bears that out too. That makes so much sense to actually think about like, yeah, at the extremes, maybe there's some correlation, but uh, but in general, um, yeah, I mean, maybe we're kind of mapping on these ideas around someone's posture being a ca- causal for certain ideas around health and pain, but may- maybe in some cases it's the result of health and pain going like, yeah. it's like this uh, reverse direction. Yeah. And then, yeah. Oh yeah. That's so the research is looking for correlation. So there's a, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I came into all this, you know, being interested in yoga, being interested in Feldenkrais and, and, you know, all of these things I was interested in. The idea was posture is really important. You got to have good posture to prevent mm-hmm. pain. You can, uh, improve your posture to um, to improve pain, and that, that's what I was looking to do in my own body. And I did these different right. practices, and I would work on my posture, and I felt better afterwards. And and my you know belief and my observation was posture is really important for pain. Uh, but when I started looking into the research, I was surprised to see uh, in this research they're looking for correlations between posture and pain. So they get a population of people. And they do objective postural measurements and they try to see whether there's a correlation between how much kyphosis you have in pain or whether you have forward head posture in pain mm-hmm. or whether length discrepancy is associated with pain or whether uh, women who are pregnant and get more, uh, more lordosis during the pregnancy, do they have more pain? And for the most part, these studies find that there's not that much correlation between objective measures of posture and pain. And I found that pretty surprising. I can imagine coming from the, the training that you had done, right? Feldenkrais, Ralphing, mm-hmm. like those, from what I understand of them are very much, like you said, very posturally influenced. And so, so that like the, that I would imagine getting that training and then tur- like getting turned on to the research side of things must have been like a pretty dissonant experience, right? right? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not so much with the Feldenkrais, uh, more with the Rolfing idea of being really upright and having those mm -hmm. uh, blocks stacked, you know, all the blocks. It's like their, their logo, right? That's their that's like the, the Rolfing logo is that the blocks are stacked. Actually, there's a there's a there's like a before and after. There's someone with the blocks kind of rotated and not stacked that well. And then the, in the second part of the logo is all the blocks get lined up and then all of a sudden uh, you're in a much better situation. So, yeah, that's wow. that's kind of a. Uh, a, a surprising idea. And, you know, some of the studies find that there are, some of the studies do find correlations between posture alignment uh, and pain, but the effects tend to be small. The um, the methodology for all these studies, all these studies are is not great. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, if you look at the systematic reviews, if you look at all of them together, I think there's a systematic review done in 2008, which looks at 54 studies Sagittal alignment finds that, you know, you look at the whole thing and we don't, we're not finding much here. We're not finding good methodological quality. We're not finding that there's good correlations between sagittal postural alignment and pain. Uh, there are some studies that find minor effects, but my reading is it's overrated. It's not, it's, it's not that important of a factor for predicting pain and therefore probably not so much for treating it either. That makes a lot of sense. And I think for, for some people, like, and, and, um, and I'm just kind of like painting with a broad brushstroke, but society in general, I think we do have these really widespread embedded ideas that sitting up straight or having that tall spine, or I feel in yoga, when I, you know, when I hear words around alignment use, there's a lot of talk around like stacking your spine up or feel um, like if you're neutral, mm -hmm, neutral is a good one. Um, or if you're standing in Tadasana, that's like the yoga word for like mountain pose or standing, like align your pelvis, like over your heels and align your rib cage over your pelvis, align your head over your rib cage. And on the one hand, it can be, it can be nice to like embody a position like that and just notice how it feels and notice like when I'm here, this is, this is like, um, what's how I am, you know, in this stack position, notice how that feels. But on top of that, there tend to be layered on these ideas that when you, it's like the restacking of the blocks, like you described from the Rolfing logo, like this idea that that's just inherently better, that that tall and stacked yeah. is better. So I think for many people to hear you suggest that you think that the um, ideas like that are overrated, I feel like that could be uh, kind of a big a big realization or, or cause them to question a lot of beliefs that they hold. Yeah, I, now I think that like, let's say you try to get aligned, you know, it's your intention to get as tall as possible. It's your intention to get as stacked as possible. That's a good postural challenge that will oh, challenge yeah. you to do something maybe you're not used to doing and maybe you'll gain more right. uh, length somewhere or more strength somewhere or you're, you're challenged the stability of certain muscles or you're challenged the ability of other muscles to lengthen or you're, you're, it'll be a coordinative challenge or it'll be like a proprioceptive challenge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you challenge yourself, you get better at stuff and you adapt and those ad adaptations may be useful, but you shouldn't get the idea that it's necessary for me to be assuming this position all the time or else I'm going to be unhealthy or I'm going to get hurt or something like that. Um, so yeah, those are great challenges, uh, but they, they can come with that potentially damaging idea, which can mm -hmm. get into your head. I'm going to have a problem if I'm not well aligned all the time, you know, it can start kind of innocent, but I've got it myself where I've, I enjoyed these postural challenges. I felt better after engaging in them. I felt more aware in my body and strong in my body and stuff like that. But what came along with this was this idea 
I need to maintain my alignment. And over time, it becomes kind of oppressive. <laughs> so it's, it's tricky to, as the yoga teacher or the body worker or the physical therapist to give that challenge without layering mm -hmm. on that narrative of the right versus the wrong or the, this is the thing that you have to do all the time. To, so yeah, we can, we can work towards those things and they can help us feel better maybe for the, not quite the reasons that we think, uh, but without ascribing that narrative to it, that then can lead to that slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I mean that, that idea that, that, that she, I think, I think the teachers can protect against that by just kind of watching the way they, they talk about things, not suggesting mm -hmm. that, um, you know, it's wrong. There's so much right and wrong to it. Like you can talk in terms of different options. Like you could try your posture like this, or you could try your posture like that. Those are all different challenges. You don't have to always, you know, go for symmetricality and uprightness and what everyone thinks is like the perfect posture. You can try asymmetrical postures. They're all like different options. That's the way that Feldenkrais is, is pretty, is pretty helpful that, that the, there's the idea in Feldenkrais that, there's many, many different ways to move. They all have their different time. They all have their different place. We want to really, when we put attention in the body, we want to have this kind of non-judgmental attention. Right. I think that that kind of helps, you know, not develop these ideas about, you know, there's really a wrong way to move. Yeah. I wonder if the teacher, you know, has to, can just avoid talking about it. Or should be go out of their way to make sure that they're countering mm. it. You know what I mean? Like, like if well, if, if I just ideas. yeah, if I just don't talk about any of those ideas, is that enough, or do I need to be deliberate about not about mentioning that this is not right or wrong, good or bad? Uh, I don't know. I guess it kind of depends on the uh, on, on the way the the teachings uh, done. Like you know, like if I'm doing like Feldenkrais, I have people do a particular movement in multiple ways. And then I have them pay attention and feel like, and one of those ways might be like the wrong way. You know? <laughs> in in air mean, quotes. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, let's say you're doing like a, uh, uh, you know, a forward bend and you're going down and touch your toes. Now it's something that a lot of people would say the wrong way to do it is to do it with a lot of lumbar flexion, you know, the right, what's the right way to go down and do a forward bend? The right way is to maximize your hip flexion and to minimize uh, lumbar flexion, right? A lot, a lot of, a lot of people would say that. Yeah. Uh, but if you're having someone do a forward bend, instead of kind of telling them this is the right way and that's the wrong way, you could have them do it both ways, mm -hmm. and then have them decide for themselves. What's the, what's the difference there? Which way do you go further? Which way feels stronger? Which way feels more stable? Which, well, how do your hips feel when you do it this way? How does your low back feel when you do it that way? So you're letting them notice the difference between those two different options. Yes. And you're saying like, look, these are two ways to do a forward bend. Uh, <laughs> these are two ways to move. What do you think? What, what? And so you're not like telling them that's the wrong way to, to, do, to do it. And so they don't get that idea. And they're like exploring these different options. And yeah, I think that's, that's, and you can find other examples with that, like when you're different ways to squat, different ways to do anything, you know? 
in your yoga classes, Jenny, you talk about like a roll down versus uh, mm-hmm. what's Hip the halfway, yeah in yoga like halfway lift Ardha Uttanasana. Yeah, so you you actually present two different techniques. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was uh, Jenny Rawlings' original <laughs> or uh, something that you picked up I from think, somewhere else. You know, I think I just. I mean the the ha- the quote halfway lift in yoga, which I think Todd, you might know that is just like a hip hinge where you keep the spine neutral and and hinge forward roughly halfway, maybe yeah. fingertips on your shins or something. And that's uh, that's like the traditional yoga transition. Like maybe you start standing, you raise your arms up, and then you fold forward. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, and and find that halfway lift, and then maybe. But basically, the idea is like you're maximizing the hip flexion, like you said, this one strategy, and and minimizing the lumbar flexion or the rounding of the spine. And I think I just remember in my earlier days of teaching yoga hearing and learning of language around that that rolling down which would be when you start standing and then chin to chest yeah, and, yeah. you know one by one roll all the way down that that was supposed to be dangerous for the spine and um injurious and injure the discs any number of of like warnings that you tend to hear so that was supposed to be a transition that you never taught as yoga teachers um, and I know different movement traditions are different. I think in Pilates, I think they do a lot. They intentionally do a lot of rolling down, my understanding. So anyway, because of that, and then having a little bit of a broader uh, perspective on movement that I do, I, I like to teach both intentionally, both the hip hinge yeah. and cue the roll down. Sometimes I'll, I'll say whichever feels better, for, you know, whichever feels like a better fit for your body in the moment, but sometimes I'll intentionally cue it just so that, yeah, so people can feel these movements in their bodies and, um, uh, realize that they're fine and that they can feel good. And, and like you said, Todd, they can just be, they can offer different things. Yeah. And you, and you can kind of get people sold in this idea that good movement is not so much about being able to repeat this stereotypically textbook, perfect uh, technique every single time. It might be about having a huge vocabulary of different options, different ways that you can do the same movement. That's what good movement's about. That's what healthy movements about that's what functional and safe movements about is many, many, many different ways to do the same thing. So you can kind of have that idea and you can teach people that idea that, Hey, we want lots of different ways to forward bend, not just one perfect way. And that, and that kind of, it's people understand that with sitting too. It's kind of like, if you had the chance to sit for eight hours with one perfect posture, or you mm-hmm. could, you were allowed to use like a thousand different postures, which you would you choose, you'd want the variability, not the perfection. And it's this, it's the same with movement. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that so well. It, um, yeah, like, it seems like that term variability, movement options seem to really uh, play a role here. So Todd, what you were saying about the idea of, of sitting and that example that you used and that there doesn't necessarily, you know, maybe that emphasis on like one single correct or good posture uh, versus the idea of like maybe a variability in your possible sitting postures, maybe that could be helpful. I really like that you pointed that out and it made me think of like the whole field of, of ergonomics ergonomics and i feel my impression of ergonomics is that it's it's very much about like setting someone up uh, i think often like in an, in an office setting so sitting at your desk and having everything aligned so that you have all these correct joint angles and you know wrists lower than elbows things like that what is what you were just suggesting about maybe variability being um preferable how does that reconcile with something like the field of ergonomics yeah i think that i think ergonomics has probably not done as good of a job 
as they could have at checking whether their ideas about good posture and alignment uh, correlate well with health and, and pain. So I, you know, mm. I'm sure it's based on, you know, solid uh, biomechanical analysis of moment arms and forces and loads in the body and stuff like that. Uh, but it kind of forgets that you're dealing with a, a biological thing and not a mechanical thing. And there's like big differences between machines and mm -hmm. uh, organisms when it comes to variability. So like a, a wow. well-functioning machine needs to shut down all of the variability so that it's always moving in exactly the same pathway all the time. And if things are, are variable at all, then that's a sign of dysfunction in the machine. It's, you know, it, you, you need to, if you, if there's any play in the joint, it needs to be tightened down. But in an organism, things are supposed to be very variable and every step you take is different. And every heartbeat is at a slightly different timing than the other one and more variable, right. you know, less variability usually correlates with worse function uh, in, in a lot of ways. And uh, it's just kind of the nature of a living thing to be incredibly variable. That's what allows you to learn from mistakes. That's what allows you to be re robust and not break down when you do the same thing every time, because you're always doing it in a slightly different way. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for explaining that. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. Uh, and just in general, uh, and I know that you, you've written about this a lot in, in your work, but just the importance of variability and what that could have to offer. And I love how you mentioned that it can be really great for learning, uh, as well. And, and potentially, would you say that, uh, like, um, my, my impression of the Feldenkrais practices that I've taken before, and I know you're a Feldenkrais practitioner, is that that's very much a practice that's that's all geared around like variability and that often people who partake in Feldenkrais type practices have positive outcomes with reducing pain. Do you think there's a connection there? Well, I mean, so yeah, like here's the way you would do something in Feldenkrais. So you, you've got some theme of a Feldenkrais lesson, which might be reaching overhead or forward bending or squatting or rolling over or flexing or extending. So usually what you're doing is you're doing that same basic thing in a, in a wide variety of ways with slightly different attention, slightly different intention, maybe moving on a slightly different angle and you're kind of comparing all the different ways to do the movement and you find out which ways are easiest for you, which feel most comfortable, which are strongest, most stable, get the most range of motion. And so, you know, one thing you figure out is which one of these different ways of doing it is kind of better for you because what if what might work, you know, might have five different people might have five different ways of doing it that's the best for them. And the other thing is that you discover more potential ways to do the movement. So you're more fluent in movement. You have a bigger movement uh, vocabulary. And you don't develop this idea that there's right and wrong ways to do it. Maybe right and wrong for you or better or worse for you. But it's kind of without that judgmental kind of stuff making you fear movements that you shouldn't fear. That makes a lot of sense. And when I think about that perspective, and something like a yoga practice, which is, you know, like what, what I, my, my um, movement lens for kind of coming to all of this, I feel like, whereas a practice like Feldenkrais or perhaps other somatic type practices, if you would agree that, that Feldenkrais is a somatic type practice, they seem to be much more about like um, non-structured movement, open-mindedness, non-judgmental. I feel like in uh, the yoga world, yoga can be taught kind of with uh, 
a spectrum of emphases. And on the one side, we there in this, I find to be the prevailing approach in yoga. Things are done very much like this is the way that you do this pose, and this is the way you transition. Like every every time, uh, right, wrong, repeated the same. This is just like that's the practice. Very like kind of prescriptive, or I, I feel like maybe Todd in some of your writings, you write about like top down versus bottom up as far as like guiding movement. And that seems to me where it's like prescribing to other people, like this is how we move. That's more top down and not, I'm not suggesting that that's uh, inherently bad or, or not a good way to go. But I just think it's interesting that there's a wide spectrum and that one could teach something like a movement, uh, a yoga class in more of, from more of that approach that is like, we're still maybe moving through these uh, poses that we're familiar with. Like people know down dog, they know warrior too. These are just kind of, you know, archetypal shapes, if, if that could be a word that you use, but that people could choose to embody them in maybe different ways or just explore them differently and see how their own bodies like resonate with these different ways of, of arranging the body, teaching yoga in a more exploratory manner versus yeah. a more prescriptive manner. Like I, I, I guess I just think it's interesting to look at that as a movement practice where certain movement practices are all about bottom up and then others can be, you know, much more top down or maybe a blend of the two. And um, I, I personally feel like I've tried to embody a style of yoga teaching that's a little more kind of in the, the a little more on that exploratory side within the container of structure. How many, how many different ways can you embody this shape or transition in between this shape versus like, oh, this is the way that we're all aspiring to do this and then that gets mm -hmm. into like right. this nitty gritty like this is the way you want to pull this thing yeah. and activate this muscle and oh there's a whole that too whatever else yes. <laughs> yeah yeah so if you do like the bottom-up exploratory approach some form some technique will emerge it just kind of shows up mm. like organically it just like evolves not one that you are intending or trying to do but which may be better and more effective than something you decided to make happen right but like right. both ways are good too like you could you could do the top down thing and say i want to make this exact shape happen and so there's this discipline of concentration and like forcing your body to do a certain thing and then there's another attitude where i'm going to explore different ways of doing things and then maybe something will show up something emerge something will happen which i didn't even know until the moment and that thing is more authentic and smarter and more adaptive than anything I could have like imposed on myself, like consciously, but they're both good, good things to do. Right. I like, I like that too. So it's the, like you said, the, the experience of trying to get tall in mountain pose, for example, mm -hmm. that that's like that characteristically good posture, mm -hmm. but there's nothing actually bad about that. And it might be a good activity to, feel where you're sensing things to, I just said this in, in a negative context, but maybe to turn, like to engage certain muscles, like that's not a bad thing to, <laughs> to engage oh, yeah. certain things and strengthen other things. It's just, if that's all you're doing and all you're doing is prescribing and all you're saying is this is good, don't do that, do this, as opposed to, well, we could do that some of the time because that's a worthwhile exercise, mm -hmm. but then simultaneously, using or not simultaneously, but on the, and then in the next breath, trying the other approach, then you can get nice. that perfect blend of both approaches. Yeah. 
Yeah, like it, like for example, in Feldenkrais, so I do this thing where people are on their back and I have them roll their pelvis forward and, and roll their pelvis back along the ground so that their low back alternately presses into the ground and uh, arches away from the ground. So really simple flexion and extension of the low back, flexion and extension of the hip joints, rolling the pelvis. Do that in any way that feels good to you. Now, imagine that there's a clock on your pelvis and roll exactly from 12 o'clock yes. to exactly six o'clock. And I don't care that people can roll exactly from 12 to six, but that's a challenge, you know, that's different. And maybe they were rolling from 1130 to 630 before. And now when they challenge themselves to roll from 12 to six, it's like a coordinative challenge. But you can actually, you can also challenge people to roll from seven to five and from three to four. And any one of those lines, right. when done really, when you aim at a really, really precise target, that's a coordinative challenge. And kind of the location of the, target is kind of arbitrary. You know, I could like shoot mm. a dartboard in many different places. I'm always challenging my coordination if, if it's a precise location. It doesn't matter so much what the location is, provided that it's precise. And that in that like you're paying attention on purpose and like really yeah. noticing the sensations that arise. I love that that um I feel I think I might have learned that that pelvic tilting exercise from you originally and maybe you called it the pelvic clock or maybe it's in your book but pelvic, I pelvic really clock is, is a popular uh yeah Feldenkrais lesson mm -hmm. based on just kind of what I was just saying there yeah yeah and it's such a it's just really not like I feel like guiding especially um yoga students where we kind of all know cat cow which is and it's more global that include you know the whole spine and also the head but that's like full extension full flexion often on hands and knees but you can do it in many positions but i think that yeah in yoga there's like a lot of emphasis on on pelvic movement in the sagittal plane which is that plane of movement seen from the side so the forward backward tilting that you were talking about todd but this idea of bringing people in and trying to see if they can and explore in their own body make it more fine-tuned and move in this like more multi-planar manner in uh, with this like details of coordination that certainly cause a, a create a challenge which makes them have to pay attention more. Do you think that there could be maybe just like in a broader sense some connection between like an exercise like that like paying attention to pelvic movement in this fine-tuned manner and potentially having some positive effects on something like chronic low back pain? Oh, I could I could imagine that happening for sure. I mean, you know, chronic low back pain is so complex and there's so many different uh, variables involved that it, it's a real, it's a real puzzler for sure. And, you know, so, you know, posture might matter and movement might matter and the condition of the tissues, like whether there's a herniated disc or a bulging disc might matter and whether there's inflammation there might matter and general health might matter and psychological issues and social issues. And, and whenever you do anything to like, try to intervene on any one of those variables. Like, so let's say you do an exercise and I'm mm -hmm. gonna work on my posture, or I'm going to work to strengthen this muscle. You also are necessarily doing lots of other things as well. You're, you're affecting the right. nervous system and the psychological system and all these things. You never really know exactly which one is the one which accounts for the benefit, if there is any benefit. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of research on, you know, let, uh, treating low back pain. Um, and it seems like many, many, many different things work to help chronic low back pain. Uh, none of them work great. All of them work a little bit sometimes for some people. Um, and it makes me think that 
just moving with a positive, hopeful attitude is the key ingredient. And, and you should try moving in lots of different ways. Uh, many, many different exercises can help for low back pain. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, pain is so complex and um, more complex than I think in our common language that we tend to hear that likes to boil things down to. You mean it's not just my anterior pelvic tilt? It's not just your anterior pelvic tilt. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up, Travis, because I was that was actually totally on my mind too because we were talking about low back pain. But we we did throw out Todd before this recording uh, to our audience if they wanted to submit some questions for you around this general topic. And we actually got multiple questions about anterior pelvic tilt along the lines of, does an anterior pelvic tilt cause future back pain? Um, what's the connection between anterior pelvic tilt and back? They're just, for some reason, I know there are many different, like quote, bad posture, quote, issues that are, that you know are, are discussed. But in the yoga world, anterior pelvic tilt tends to be a big one. I feel like that's discussed. Could you talk a little bit about, about pe maybe pelvic tilt in general and what you'd yeah. see as its potential connection to how people feel? Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. We hope you've been enjoying this conversation with Todd Hargrove, and we hope you can see why Travis and I are such big fans of Todd's work and his science-informed perspective on the human body and movement. Travis's and my work together has definitely been influenced by Todd's work in general, including our Strength for Yoga remote group training program. Remote group training is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our program empowers yogis in both their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Also remember that other ways you can support us are by signing up for my email newsletter at JennyRawlings.com newsletter and the link is in the show notes and by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. And now back to our episode. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about about maybe pelvic tilt in general and what you'd yeah. see as its potential connection to how people feel? Yeah, yeah. So that uh, that um, you know kind of summary of research I talked before kind of helps answer that question. There's at least one study where they looked at uh, pregnant women who you know when they're pregnant their belly gets big. They sometimes can go into more anterior pelvic tilt as the mm -hmm. pregnancy goes on. This study, they looked at who was going into the most anterior pelvic tilt and who was getting the most lumbar lordosis, and they wanted to know whether they had more or less pain, and there, was, there wasn't a correlation there. There's other, other studies in general that look at uh, forward head posture and kyphosis and lordosis and try to find out whether that's correlated with pain. You'll find some studies where there's a correlation with pain, probably most of them not, or, or it's only a small amount. So I wouldn't worry that much about anterior pelvic tilt as being a cause of pain. Um, I think maybe people worry about it a lot because that is kind of like one of the easiest things to see and measure as far as posture goes. It's right there to be seen kind of 
uh, easily. And also it kind of like it correlates with your your belly looking bigger, which is something people also don't want. So you know, I don't know. I mean, like what we were saying socially before, I think it's one of the reasons posture gets overrated. I mean, there's a million things that contribute to low back pain, but it's the ones that are most easily seen and most easily objectively measured that tend Whoa. to get all of the attention. And if you could kind of look in a microscope inside someone's low back and see the inflammation that's there or see somehow see the sensitivity of the nervous system, then you would see that those are really, really, really big factors for pain and people would stop uh, you know, worrying so much about anterior pelvic tilt, but we can't see <laughs> those things. We can't measure them very well. Uh, and so they don't get as much attention and we can't control them as well easy, easy, uh, either. I mean, oh. people, people want to put all the attention on the variables that they can control. And if back pain would be just as simple as doing a, a little bit of a sucking in your gut, that would right. be nice, but it's, but it's not. As opposed to like fixing your life. Yeah. As opposed to like fixing <laughs> your life or like, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Well, let, let me just do these pelvic tilts and then yeah. I'll take care of that. I, I, you know, I can continue living my chronically stressed life. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a little bit about that, you know, that uh, the the guy who's looking for his uh, keys under the lamppost even though he lost them in the alley cuz the light's better under the lamppost. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, I love it's that. A little bit of that. I really love how you point that out, that like the thing that's just more obvious to spot almost like with your eye just naturally can tend to be the thing that we then want to. Forward head posture is pretty easy to spot. Yeah. yeah, that that was actually the other, the second most, uh, you know, I'd say second most common, like, quote, bad posture issue that we tend to hear dialogue around in the yoga world. So, so one of the one of our audience members asked about putting a book on top of your head. Oh yeah. In, in I can see if I can find pose. her. Exactly. I've never heard of that before. I got, that's something that you've she, seen before, um, Jenny. Her question was, and this is one of the questions for you, Todd. Oh, did, sorry. Did you say, ask if I'd seen that before? Uh, yeah. I just, I had never heard of that intervention before. I had never heard of, I mean, I've, I have heard about like uh, teaching people quote good posture by balancing a book on top of their head and then they walk around. I mean, it oh. seems like Todd is not even like okay. you've heard of That's that. your model training. That's the, that's the old school model training, right? Yeah, exactly. The model walk? Yeah. It does to me feel, when I think about that, it feels like decades ago. Like it feels like that's a slightly different era, but, but oh yes, God. balance. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so this, this person, her question was, does placing a book on your head during seated meditation help to correct a forward jutting head? Well, I think it would because you because you wouldn't be able to do the um, to do the exercise with the book would fall off, right? So that that is a constraint which would require you mm. to do this, but that doesn't mean that it's something that's going to be uh, good for your meditation or good for your neck or, or any or anything like that. Or, that, or enduring that, over time, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is a challenge. It's a challenge to your balance. It's a challenge to your posture. It could, it could lead to some adaptation. I wouldn't expect it to, um, you know, make your neck feel, uh, that much better. And I definitely wouldn't fear a forward head posture that much. I suspect that that question may be motivated by the mm -hmm. idea that a forward head posture will, will certainly doom you to pain. And, and there's yes, studies on that pain. too. Studies looking at that. There's a recent study, uh, looking at Australian adolescents in school and they, and you know, there's this idea that tech, that all these kids are texting text and all this stuff and they've got text neck. Um, 
So they, they grouped all the students into, I think, uh, four groups, people with really upright posture who look like they've got a book in their head, people that are really forward and kind of new and in between. And they, they wanted to know whether those correlations between which group you were in and pain. No, there's not. Uh, there's other studies that that show that as well. And it's kind of weird because, you know, when your head is forward, yeah, I mean, biomechanically, there is more stress in, on the, I mean, it's, it's not as... Uh, you're not as stacked and there's going to be mm-hmm. uh, more stress. But you know what? When you pull your head back here, there that might be kind of stressful too. Uh, so <laughs> also, also muscles and joints adapt to stress over time. So even though this is, you know, maybe causing more stress somewhere, those whatever's getting stressed is getting better over time at handling that particular form of stress. And you've probably been doing that for years and years and years and years and years. There's been lots of time to adapt to that kind of stress. Maybe you're really good at that now. Thank you for pointing that out because the body, we like to think of the body as a machine, but it's not a machine, right? It's like a living organism with whose soft tissues, or actually all tissues have the ability to adapt. Yet we hear, at least, I'm sure you're familiar with these, what people say about forward head posture, but it's something like for every inch forward that the head creeps, it places... I don't even know order of magnitude of load on the muscle, the, the muscles of the upper back, right? Like for every inch forward, it's like this much more. And that's yeah. taught in this like fear mongering manner. Yeah. But, but you yeah. can look at it the other way. It's like, Hey, you want to give your neck muscles a good workout, bring your head forward a little bit <laughs> and then your neck will get stronger. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like anything else. I mean, you know, it's like, did you know that walking an extra, a mile a day puts, you know, 10 times as much stress in your body as just sitting around. Yeah, that's true, but it's good for you. <laughs> totally. Your body, because stress and load, stress being another word for load in a, in a biomechanical sense, those things are good for our bodies in the right dose, right? Like not too much. Not too the right low. kind and the right dose. I mean, for some people, maybe this is the wrong kind of stress or is the, mm-hmm. they feel better. So, you know, I would say, you know, if you, suspect that having your head forward is a problem, you know, maybe, maybe try to have it more back. I mean, actually I have clients who, who they have a lot of neck pain when they work and they suspect maybe it's related to their posture and they're, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things that's possible is that when the, when people get really interested in what's in front of them in their computer, mm-hmm. they start, you know, coming forward, everything's going forward and they're, they're so absorbed in what's going on there that, you know, maybe they're getting into a bad position. So, you know, for sure, you know, explore or play with or experiment with a different posture at work and see if it works for you uh, if you have a problem. But if you don't have a problem and you've noticed that you're like this and you're really worried that there's going to be a problem, I would not be that worried. And I, <laughs> I think the other thing, too, is like, yeah, if, if you're having pain, you can try something different, but it's more along the lines of this is different, not better. Well, it might be better for you mm-hmm. right now, but it doesn't mean that it's better all the time forever after. So it's like, this could be a temporary. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to put yourself in a movement or a postural jail, which which I've right. done se- several times myself. I, I mean, and you know, it's like, it's happened to me several times where I've developed an idea that a certain movement is preferable to another one. I remember reading the idea that you're, your discs in your low back, you know, many, many, many rounds of low back flexion can start to damage them. I mean, I, I read that from oh, Stu yeah. Based on mm-hmm. research, it may be good. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I developed the idea that, you know, when I bend down to pick something else up, it would be better to, you know, max out on that 
hip flexion and minimize that mm-hmm. uh, low back flexion, even when I'm picking up a sock or something like that. Right. I, I kind of got into a habit of doing that, or maybe I was just practicing it because that was like a better way to move. But over time, that developed into a habit where I was never fully relaxed when I was going to pick something up. And yeah. I, at some point, I kind of, I just tried to do it in the fully relaxed way. And I noticed that I just wasn't, there was something holding me back there. It wasn't like this. I didn't even have a conscious idea that that was wrong for me. I didn't even think that. But there was like some dumb part of my brain that was like in control of my back and policing it like at all times and like not letting me do that. And when I finally, you know, I became aware of that and I kind of like let that go. I was like, I haven't felt that for a while. And that feels good to like not to kind of let that go, you know. And so you can develop that with lots of things if you, you know, pay too much attention to ideas about you know the right way to do stuff. I mean, Travis, you know, the people, when they lift in the gym, they want to have good form and that's a good thing to do, but then they start getting, you know, kind of like really robotic about a lot of movements. <laughs> it's like a habit. Yeah. Like, hold on. Let me pick up this pencil that I dropped with my perfect, uh, hip, uh, hinge and keep my upright posture and my chin tucked and my tongue on the roof of my mouth. And it's like, oh, hold on. <laughs> That sounds kind of um, along the lines of something we've talked about before uh, on the podcast, Travis, micromanaging seems right. a little micromanaging. To right. Me. And that, in, in the, the context that we've talked about it before, it's the teacher giving extra detailed and perhaps unnecessary cueing. But Todd, you're saying like this was something that was going on somewhat subconsciously. Right. And oh, right. That's a good point. Yeah. It become like so a like habit for him. You're micromanaging yourself without even like doing it consciously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it started with, I don't even really know how much I ever even consciously thought that that was a bad movement. I was just, you know, I'm just like, really, you know, I'm a movement geek. I pay attention to my body. I'm kind of, I want to, you know, challenge myself to move in certain ways. And some of those practices and some of those ideas can, you know, they can kind of turn into some weird habits over, over time. Yeah. And I wonder too, if like micromanaging to begin with, you know, from the top down, whether it's you micromanaging yourself or a movement teacher micromanaging their students, maybe, maybe something could start off in a micromanaging way, but then they just do that movement that way so often that it becomes habit. And then maybe it's not so much that they're consciously thinking about it, but like you said, Todd, it's just the way that the brain has just kind of learned to move their body that way, which, which results ne- necessarily in reduction of movement variability. Yeah. You're just repeating the same thing all the yeah. time. Yeah, it goes along with that uh, idea that, you know, external cues are better than internal cues for oh, lots yes. of things, you know, the motor learning and the performance and stuff like that. So if you pay attention to the thing you're trying to do instead of, you know, the way your body's doing it, you'll move more efficiently and you'll learn faster. There, there, there's that idea with external cues. And and one of uh, that, that probably, yeah, I think when you put a lot of attention on your body, um Mm. there's, there's always kind of like a risk to that, that it, you, you'll move in a way that's less authentic and less of- efficient. And yeah. Yeah. So just, just for some of our audience members who might not be super clear on that difference between external and internal cues, uh, would, uh, maybe could, what would you say to that? Like an external cue would be uh cueing movement in a way where someone's like interacting with, um, an object or something in their environment, like reach toward the door or, yeah. versus um, think about their muscles and what muscles are firing or or more like how they're doing the movement internally. 
Would, yeah, there's, there's a, long, kind of a long line of research finding that people learn faster, perform better when their attention is focused on something outside of the body compared to inside of the body. For example, uh, jump up and touch something as high as possible versus jump up and powerfully extend your hips. So, you, <laughs> so if you're thinking about powerfully extending the hips, that doesn't work as well as uh, you know your, your, your hand going up like that. Well, in a lot of these yeah. Feldenkrais classes and yoga classes, the attention is on the body. Like notice what's going on in this joint. Notice what's going on in that joint. You could put the attention more in the environment. So, you know, you, you could you could talk about, you know, push into the floor. So you're talking about the floor or your hand is reaching towards the ceiling as opposed yes. to you, you feel your shoulder doing this, that and the other thing. I think it's OK to definitely have some attention on the body. I, I do that yeah. in my classes all the time. But when I do it, I want it to be like a non-judgmental attention that's not yes. kind of like attached to too many ideas of right and wrong and, and safety and fear. I want it to be like a curious attention. Oh, that makes so much <laughs> sense. In yoga, they often do this to protect this. And and mm -hmm. Jenny, you often say, like, just, just stop after the do this. Yeah, exactly. Just drop the protect this. Great, great example. Great example. Yeah, this protects your low back or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they say, what do we say instead? Well, don't say anything at all. Just right. let, let them give them a moment of peace and quiet so they can experience reflect it. and feel yeah, what about what about like notice how you're feeling as you're doing it though you know notice your comfort level notice your mm -hmm. you know so they can they can know it's for them because a lot of people won't notice that they're hurting themselves at, at all when they do something they kind of like they're really accustomed to something feeling crummy or stiff or excess you know and they don't even realize the possibility that this could be happening and feeling like really good. So they might need their attention mm. like on the body to, to notice that, right? Absolutely. That's a really good point as well, because we're, we're all so different in our own individual bodies and in what we feel and perceive. So yeah, giving people the space to um, maybe realize that there could be a different way that they could feel. If they're used to things always feeling crummy, like you said, then maybe it's nice to open that possibility that they could actually feel good or better or more freedom in a certain movement like didn't even know that was possible yeah exactly because i felt that myself my best my best uh results from any kind of movement intervention is i come out feeling a way that i didn't even really know was possible that i didn't even know there was tension there i didn't even know that this could feel that free and then so there's a whole new idea when you're done right i mean your students must feel that all the time after yoga Absolutely. Yes. I really, I love um, how you even experienced that yourself and how, how you would describe that. Um, I have a question actually going a little bit back to something we were talking about a moment ago, which was forward head posture and tech snack and just that idea of like the head being forward and what that's doing to the upper back. So along these lines, there is a line of thinking that I hear discussed and recommended in yoga a lot, but I know it's very widespread physiotherapy, physical therapy. Um, this is in that realm as well. But just this idea that like when someone has, say, quote, bad posture, or just any posture that uh, they might be looking to change, or that like um, a physiotherapist might want to change in someone, there are these ideas that when it's say forward head posture, and that's often accompanied by like rounded shoulders and a, and often this is called um, upper cross syndrome. It's something yeah. that was like a term coined like decades ago. So the idea is that when someone uh, presents with that posture, generally that's assumed to be bad. And then the idea is that we quote correct it 
by stretching the the pecs like the chest and strengthening like the rhomboids or the muscles between the shoulder blades and the idea is that stretching what is short and strengthening what is long will reset the posture or correct it back to neutral are you familiar with oh yeah 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 there's there's your classic uh uh you know like you either use the uh you know the duct tape or the dw40 you know the duct tape to make things shorter and then the dw40 oh. <laughs> like yeah i love that analogy I, I actually used to when i was a kid and my prosthetic knee started to squeak i would just spray it um so actually for me it, it worked like a charm but uh oh my gosh a little different but wouldn't you say your prosthetic limb is more of a machine like if we're talking about like yeah. machine versus organism. There you go. It's a perfect example. So maybe it works there. <laughs> That's really funny. But um, but so and there's upper cross syndrome. There's also lower cross syndrome, and I just like to mention that because we've discussed anterior pelvic tilt in this conversation, and that similar line of thinking with anterior pelvic tilt, and then it's like certain muscles, like the hip flexors, are said to be shortened. The glutes are said to be lengthened, and therefore to to fix it, you stretch the hip flexors and strengthen the glutes. It's bigger picture than that. But just these ideas around posture being like what makes our posture is short and tight muscles and long muscles, you know, like that's what holds our body in certain positions. And that to change posture, you need to re-stretch and re-strengthen and tighten things back up. Could you speak to that approach at all? Like what, um, whether it's short and tight muscles that create our posture to begin with? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think so, so much. I mean, and, and you, and uh, part of that is based on just my observations of some people that are really mobile that might habitually be in kind of slumpy positions. Like I've had clients mm. that are uh, dancers, they can get extended, you know, they can open their chest, they can, they can get into any position, but their habitual posture could be, you know, slumpy. Oh. Or something like that. So, so, so it doesn't um, mean they're stuck there, just if that's their I mean, yeah, they don't need more mobility. They're just hanging out in the comfortable neutral zone for them. And it's not because they can't get here. Right. Uh, but I mean, in general, I, I, um, I'm kind of interested in what people can do much more than their habitual posture. So if someone is like, like this, and that's their habitual posture, first of all, I'm not really concerned unless for them, that seems to be causing a problem. Right. Like if they're like, I'm, I don't like this, or this mm -hmm. doesn't feel good to me. My question is, well, can you get here? Can you do this? So I wanted to kind of know what they can do. So instead of like getting someone uh, like this, I'd be interested in, can they do a certain uh, functional task that requires them to do this, which for me is like getting your hands overhead. We, we all need to do that. We need to do that occasionally to reach things overhead. So, I mean, what's something that you need to do in your actual life that requires an open chest? To me, it's like reaching overhead. So let's, okay, if you can't reach overhead, let's reach an overhead. That's like something people should be able to do. And then for like, you know, for the, the lower cross, the function would be, can you extend the hips? I mean, can you, that's something that we need to do. We need to do that for running and jumping and stuff like that. So, uh, and if that's something that, makes sense to work on, you know, let's work on that, especially if you're a runner or a jumper or something like that. So you, you attach the, the supposed functional defect to an actual concrete functional task you can work on. And that kind of tells you what to do. And it makes it more meaningful 
Absolutely. And more about like a movement or a movement pattern than about like specific muscles that you're, um, like you said, duct taping or WD-14 or whatever to like make them longer and make them shorter. Yeah. Then you're not working on just some abstract aesthetic ideal. You're working on a concrete function that you can, you know, you can, you can work towards. And it's obvious how to do that. You know, you could you describe then like either the, obviously this is going to vary wildly from one person to the next, but like, is it about that stretching and strengthening? Is that, is that all it is? Is there, or do you not even look at it in that kind of isolated way? Are you looking at it more in an integrated way? Like, okay, well, we're trying to reach overhead, so we're going to do reaching activities. I'd probably just do the reaching. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I'm a huge fan of reaching. I've written, read some, uh, so I've written recently about this. I, I really like reaching as like one of the most basic, fundamental human movements, one that kind of organizes the whole body. I think like any primate is like built to reach. Some of the reasons I like yoga. I mean, I think of yoga poses as like reaching poses. So many yoga poses are like, if I boiled it down to a simple functional intention, it's about getting the hand as far away from the middle of the body with certain fixed points of support in the feet or, or another part of the body. So forward bends are about reaching for the ground. And a lot of them are about reaching for something over above. A lot of them are about reaching for something in front of you, like a warrior thing. I mean, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, human bodies are, are good at reaching. You know, we, we evolved in the trees. That's what they're made to do. <laughs> what a fantastic way to look at yoga and like kind of reframe what some of our poses from a movement perspective could be about. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Not all the yoga poses look that way. I mean, and so and we're also, we're also, our bodies get organized really well by, well, I guess reaching with the eyes, like looking for something, you know? Yes. So a lot of rotational movements are like essentially about looking behind you or reaching behind you or an, or an upper dog to me is about looking up. Yeah. It's, it's not about extending the spine. You're extending the spine so you can look up. I mean, that's why our spine extends so you can look up. I mean, it's one of the reasons our spine extends. That makes so much sense. Mind blown. I know. <laughs> in human kind of anatomic terms. So I might talk about like the spinal extension and the back bend. And I think that can be helpful. Like some people just, that's how they like to hear and think about movement, but it's like a whole other layer and level to make it more integrated, like you're describing. Well, it kind of, it, it kind of, uh, it, you know, it tells you how to cue it. You know, mm -hmm. you, you can always relate to the position of the hand with respect to space or like what your eyes can see. I, I had a teacher one time and I, I like texted Jenny right after this. I was like, this was the best cue I've ever heard. She told us to look not just with our eyes, but like with one of our eyes, I guess it was, we were looking maybe up to the ceiling or up to the sky. And it was like, not just look with your eyes, but look with the the, the right outside eye, eye. yeah and i was just like that's oh my right. god i've never tuned into that that's amazing because it just forces you to get even you know deeper or more concentrated that's so oh, interesting yeah 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 there's a lot of feldenkrais lessons where like rotational lessons where you you know uh you know rotate to look behind you rotate to look behind you and then uh, so you do that movement and then you do it in a slightly different way rotate so that the eyes are really leading the movement so mm -hmm. the eyes go first and then everything else follows versus, you know, you kind of rotate and then the eyes lag behind and you know, you notice the difference in the quality of the movement and it's very, very, very subtle, but the movement's probably a little bit better organized when 
the eyes lead the movement because that's what your there's some reflexes there and that's what your body's designed to do you know your your body's designed to follow the eyes let the whole spine is serving the ability of the eyes to find a target and for the hand to find a target you know that's like what that's like its job that's all the neurology is set up that way the anatomy is all set up that way <laughs> that's a, yeah mind blown that's so cool to think about and to yeah think about integrating in I have a question, which just kind of going back a little bit to when I was asking about the short muscles, tight muscles, and what like organizes or creates our posture. And I just wanted to ask this because I know we've gotten this question several times because we've mentioned sometimes on our podcast, often influenced by you and your content. Uh, but I feel like I've learned and how you've described this that posture is controlled and set by the nervous system by the nervous system is like kind of what's what's um placing our body in the positions that it's that they're in and i feel like we've uh we've tried to suggest that kind of as a counter to some of these ideas these more wd-40 and duct tape ideas we've suggested that on the podcast before and sometimes people have just not really understood the ramifications of that or what that even means like how to conceptualize that like, how could it be that posture is determined by the nervous system? Well, I guess, um, I mean, it wouldn't totally be determined. I mean, there's some people that have uh, their posture is really probably very determined by some structural thing that's going on in their body. Like, like the person with, uh, you know, osteoporosis, they start to get, you know, this huge hump right there and they literally cannot right. do this. So they're, they're not doing this because this is a habit. They're doing that because that's the only thing they, they can really, really physically point. do. But like to take my other example of a, like the dancer that can really literally do like anything they want, then whatever they do is going to be set by something else. I mean, some sort of a habit, maybe they're the way they're socially comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, their, their posture is really set by what they feel like is socially comfortable. Some people, they kind of, you know, they don't want to be like this because that sends some sort of social signal that they don't That's want. That's like upright. And, and so they... You know, maybe they want to show submissiveness. Maybe they want to hide their chest. They want to hide their height, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, so I think that there's just so many, so many different things that could be, you know, putting you into your habitual shape. That it, that and and you know the nervous system is the thing that is taking all of that into consideration. You know the structural limitations and the social limitations and the and the, you know the energy expenditure at every different place and the comfort and whether it hurts to be like this and therefore you're like that and you know ultimately it's the nervous system that puts you in that position but it's it's considering a zillion different factors to do it and not just the potential length and strength of the muscles that's the one we all focus on in rehab but it could be so many other things that makes so much sense and i feel like that really just speaks to the bigger picture that's there Again, kind of like um, how tempting it can be to look at the body as a machine and just these parts that are you know, kind of placed where they're placed. And we might liken that to be just where a short muscle would just pull a bone and keep it there. But like yeah. the muscles are ultimately controlled by the, like the nervous system sets the, your muscle tension and what's contracting and muscle lengths, right? So kind of in that sense, it's like take a step back and look at this bigger picture. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's the people... It's, it's wanting to look at things like a machine is, is kind of like underlies a lot of, of those ideas. And it's just so much more of a, of a complex uh, thing.
Yeah. And you write about that. So well, like I, I, yeah, I, I, like I said in the intro, one of those things you're really skilled at, I think is taking such complex uh, topics, but kind of distilling them down in ways that, that people can find digestible and understandable. I think that's a, a good example of that. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, I, there was a question that we got from a, from a listener that Travis and I thought was like an extra interesting one that we wanted to make sure to ask you. So is it, uh, is it okay if I throw that out there? Yeah. Yeah. Here's what the question was. Why is it that the most common quote, bad posture pains are in the traps, like the upper traps are in the traps and lumbar spine or the low back? I'm just curious as to why pain seems to concentrate around certain main areas for many people. That's a good question. I don't know if I can totally answer that. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, there's, there's some parts of the body that are more vulnerable to damage and pain than others, for sure. I guess that's pretty mm -hmm. obvious. You know, most, you know, people have pain in the low back, people have pain in the neck. I think there's, you know, as the human body evolved, as it went from being you know, horizontal to vertical, there's certain trade-offs there. I mean, there's all, there's, you, you could like uh, design a body in, in a million different ways. And there's always going to be certain parts of the body that are kind of be more uh, vulnerable to yeah. stress than others. And I think it, it just could be that, that human design is such that low backs and necks are kind of uh, weak points. You know, you've got, they're kind of choke points for all these nerves to get into the, the extremities and they have to be mobile and stable. It's kind of a hard thing to accomplish. I, I think I've heard that, uh, you know, our chimpanzee cousins don't have the same rates of, of spinal degeneration as we do. Uh, you know, when humans stood upright, they, uh, they got certain benefits, but it comes with certain costs. And maybe the cost is to, is to low backs. That, 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 that's a speculative idea, but it's one that's held by a lot of evolutionary biologists. So, Maybe you could explain it uh, like that. Maybe it does justify. Maybe it does justify. You know, kind of thinking about posture and biomechanics and stuff like that. Right, because that's like kind of a biomechanical explanation yeah. for why those tend yeah. to be. Yeah, I mean, there's some parts of our bodies that hurt more than others. Knees hurt and low backs hurt, and you know, <laughs> people get tennis elbow, and you know, I never hurt right here or like right there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good one. Yeah, it seems like it's often like areas of joints or major joints of the body, yeah. elbow, wrist, shoulder, and the lumbar spine is full of a bunch of joints. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so as you stated earlier, earlier on in this conversation, uh, the idea of posture being like a major cause of like pain and dysfunction in the body, you think in general, that's kind of overrated. Yeah. And I really like how you use that word because I think it's suggesting that it's not that they never play a role or that saying that, you know, they don't matter completely is is correct. But just in general, maybe they've been blown, blown out of proportion. Uh, so if posture is not necessarily have such a direct causal link with something like pain, or at least not to the extent we tend to hear, what other ways could you see something like asking someone to change their posture, you know, like intentionally change how they hold themselves? And maybe now where I'm meaning like their static posture, their kind of that original definition we gave of like their daily static posture. What sort of context could you see where suggesting that someone actually consciously change that uh, could be helpful or useful? Yeah, I would say so. I would say uh, if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if you don't have uh, pains in your neck or low back, and you notice that your 
low back and neck, has weird posture, I would not worry about it. Um, if you do have pain in your neck or your low back or some other area and you're worried and you're wondering whether fixing the posture might help, then the first thing you have you should ask is, does my pain vary with posture? You know, is it worse when I use the computer? Is it worse when I sit? Is it worse when I'm engaged in certain postures? That's a, if the answer is no, then posture is probably not the cause. But if, but if, you, but if, yeah, my, my pain is varying a lot with posture, that maybe, maybe changing your posture can help and you can, and then you can start to do experiments. Let's try it. And most people do it. I mean, most people they're sitting and they're, they're, they're starting to hurt. What's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to change their posture. So That's have right. you already done this experiment? Have you tried, you know, did, so your low back hurt when you were flexing forward a, a little bit, it's completely reasonable. Let's try to sit upright. Most people have already tried that. Let's try a lumbar pillow. Most people have tried that as well. By the time they get to you, you know, the experts. Uh, right. So, you know, you start you doing really common sense things like changing your posture. Um, and the other thing is changing your posture is uh, much more likely to be important when you're involved in an, a high force, high speed activity where you only get one chance to get it right. So you're about to, you know, get into some heavy deadlifting. You probably mm -hmm. don't want maybe you don't want to just do whatever comes naturally or let's explore and let's see what emerges and it's all good. <laughs> maybe you want someone there saying, look, this is what your posture has got to be under that heavy bar. I'm not sure I'm saying that's definitely true, but it's more true than like, okay, you know, you don't need to get so strict when you're just going to sit down in your desk and do some work. <laughs> you know, these are these are high force activities. You don't have any practice when, with them. You haven't already adapted to them. Right. Then, you know, maybe worry about your posture. And if function is really important, posture determines your function. So like if you want to hit a golf ball very far or throw very hard, your body's going to have to get into certain kinds of alignments or postures to create the necessary forces and to do stuff. So, you know, you, then you ask a coach, you know, what, how do I do this? Do you, do you like the idea of, so you mentioned just now, like four different ways that you could sit. Do you like the idea of kind of deliberately trying to move through many of those different postures, shapes over the course of the day? You know, we, we just said, well, if it hurts to do this, try this. But may, maybe try this for an hour, try this for an hour, try this for an hour. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, most people figure that one out. Most people, I mean, fidgeting is a very normal reaction to discomfort. Nice. So you can't kind of, you kind of, but you know what? Not everyone does. I have some clients that are like, they're like workaholics and they're very outside of their body with their attention. And they can like, they're so absorbed at their work all day long that at the end of the day, they're like, wow, my body's killing me. I didn't even notice. You know, yeah. I'm the complete, I'm the complete opposite. I can't, as soon as my body like becomes slightly uncomfortable, I like, I can't work. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it depends on the person. And so some pe people it's like, Hey, have you, is it possible that you could like pay attention to how you're sitting during the, you know, some people are like this and they don't notice mm -hmm. it. Shoulders you know? out. So can, we, can we develop some awareness of like where your shoulders are? And like, right. you know, figure out that you don't need to do this and you could actually type like that. So it, it totally depends on, on the person and you, yeah. um, yeah. Of course it can work against you. Like when I was doing my PhD research and I found out about scapular dyskinesis and winging, you know, I, I, I was, I filmed myself doing it, discovered that my right scapular winged 
And then for like two years, I was like, ah, that always feels a little uncomfortable. I feel like my my right shoulder blade's like a little bit off of my back rib cage. And it's like, that wasn't even part of my awareness until I brought it to my awareness. And it, I didn't, I wasn't having a problem. Uh, and so, yeah, well, like, like you said, if it's not broken, don't fix it. That's me. That's what I was trying to talk about before. That's, that's an excellent example of how, yeah, if you have kind of like, uh, you know, kind of a neurotic kind of a mindset that can like even becoming aware of something can. Could yeah. And I, like, <laughs> I knew what was going on and I couldn't stop it. <laughs> I'm sitting against the back of the chair. I'm like, that feels weird. And like, yeah. I know there's nothing wrong, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember listening to this uh, Sam Harris uh, podcast where he was talking about when he gets a medication, he kind of wants to know what the, the side effects are, but he has his wife read them and then monitor him for it. Cause he, if he Smart. reads, if he reads what the Smart. side effects are, he'll start developing them you know, being a hypochondriac. <laughs> yeah. Like psychosomatically or whatever he could just, yeah, that's holy. Yeah. Cause the brain is so powerful like that. It can create. Yeah, It depends on, it depends on the person. Some people, some mm -hmm. people are like that and you'll notice, you know, if you look at yourself, you look at other people, some people are kind of anxious, neurotic, you know, excessive self-consciousness all the time. Some people are totally the opposite right. of that. Yeah, Super and your, your intervention when in a one-on-one -on -one setting should try to take that into consideration in a group context like a yoga class, it's tougher to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so so the opposite of that neurotic person is the person who's kind of like the crossfitter or the marathoner or the workaholic, someone that like doesn't even notice that they've got some huge problem in their body until like the end of the workout. Oh my God, look at that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They might benefit from a little, because they developed these catastrophic injuries. And even though they were on the way coming mm. at them, they never saw it coming. Some people imagine things that aren't even there. I mean, some people like don't even see the yes. truck that's heading their way, you know? That's such a good point, which makes me think that like uh, movement practices like Feldenkrais or uh, those more non-judgmental, non-structure types of movement could be helpful for people like the type A and the CrossFitter and the workout just to help them sense their body better. Yeah, I mean, you, that's what you're doing in a yoga class. You know, you're kind of like introducing people to their body in a healthy way and getting their attention on the body in the healthy way and yeah. developing a health, healthy relationship to it. And and, you know, the different people will have very different, you know, you know, different orientations to that. I, I never thought about that because I so many times people come to me and, you know, they're they're finishing up physical therapy, wanting to get into a personal training context. And we're talking about the injury. They're like, yeah, I, I didn't even uh, it, it happened after workout, but I didn't notice it during the workout. I'm like, that's weird. How could that be? And now now I'm wondering, <laughs> well, all right, maybe they should have noticed it during the workout nice. and they were just that type of person they literally didn't yeah. yeah that makes that makes so much sense well todd i kind of feel like we've covered a lot in this conversation and i think we've mostly covered many of the questions that we had to start off with travis do you were there any last lingering things that you wanted I, to ask i'm gonna put todd on the spot like the question is, what would be your, your biggest or best recommendations regarding posture? <laughs> I know that's like a kind of a nebulous question, but anything maybe we didn't cover or just summary points? Um, summary points, uh, it's overrated. It's not irrelevant. <laughs> 
look into it if you're involved with uh, high forces and dangerous activities look into it if your pain uh, uh, varies with your posture if you're trying to make your posture better don't think so much about right or wrong think about all the different options you have and experiment with them like uh, you know some people feel better in you know sitting with I feel like better hunched. when I sit in slump. Yeah. Others, my, my wife's exact opposite. She feels better. When, so don't make, have any presumptions, you know, go with what feels good to you. That's it. Awesome. I, I think that that last point's especially salient. And we, we hadn't mentioned that before. Like if a slumped posture feels good to you, maybe you've been thinking that that upright posture was your ticket and now you've been having pain. Well, mm-hmm. if the more hunched over posture feels good, then do that. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a really, yeah, that's really good to help open people's minds around like that slump can actually be a great posture for people. And it's not necessarily like inherently um, damaging or dangerous. It's just, yeah, yeah. humans are built to sit on the ground. When you're sitting on the ground, how many humans can sit on the ground with like a lower doses? I mean, maybe like very, very, very few. Such a good point. That's a natural way to sit. That is a really good point. We're like built to sit that way. It sounds like you're suggesting. Yeah. It's all, yeah. I think that hopefully that will help maybe assuage some people's fears and worries and anxiety around things like like posture and alignment and how we hold and carry ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just feel so thankful about all of the insights that you've shared today. This has been super helpful and also practical and also very eye-opening. And I know that our listeners are going to now be like, what? Todd is so smart and amazing. And he clearly has a lot to share. Go get his books. Exactly. Which we will link in the show notes, of course, both of his books. But where else? They're on Amazon, right? Yeah. 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 Books on Amazon. Yeah. Um, I I have both of them. And they are excellent. But where else would you like to suggest that people um, find you? We'll list everything in the show notes, of course. But if there's like one place you yeah, so I've got the uh, I've got uh, toddhargrove.substack.com. So that's my current blog, and uh, that's where I'm blogging. And then uh, I'm on Twitter, Todd Hargrove, and my old blog is bettermovement.org. And uh, I'm not really posting there right now, but if you go to either one of those, you'll find the other one as well. So there was a a transition. Well, I, I remember recently because I'm on your email list, you started a member mm-hmm. like a, a tiered thing. Yes, that's the word. So you got all content. the all the all the best stuff with. Well, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you you can you can pay for it, and you get uh, some things that other people don't. But, but you can also subscribe for free. Mostly you're just be encouraging me to write more if you if you pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> if more people pay, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you for for recommending that, and we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was so good to have you. We're honored. Thank you so much, Todd. Thank you. And that wraps up our look at posture alignment and the idea that posture is overrated with the amazing Todd Hargrove. Remember that you can support our work with this podcast by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. You can also stay in the loop with all of our offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter, and the link is in the show notes. Lastly, remember to use code podcast30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program, or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. 
You can learn more and sign up at JennyRollings.com, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. Mm-hmm.